This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few minutes of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any uh, known sins you have in silent prayer to God the Father, at which time, based on the promise of 1 John 1, 9, we have forgiveness of sins. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. We recover fellowship. We uh, We have the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to gather together to praise your name through song, to study your word, to have our the human viewpoint in our souls challenged by the divine viewpoint truth of your word. Father, we thank you that we have your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that your word is absolute truth and is on the basis and by means of your word that the Holy Spirit takes us through the process of spiritual growth, taking us to spiritual maturity. Father, we thank you for this nation, for the freedom that we have in this country to study your word, to teach your word freely and proclaim the gospel, and we pray that that would continue, that you would also protect this nation and watch over it, that you would foil the plots of those who hate this nation, because we understand that this war on terrorism is at root a religious war that has Christianity in its crosshairs, that this is the result of the devil's strategy to try to destroy Israel and try to destroy the impact of Christianity in the world. So we pray that you would continue to protect us, keep us secure, that we may send out missionaries and support Israel. Now, Father, as we study your word in this important topic this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, retrain some of the facts, some of the information that we may be able to use it as we witness to what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the late 19th century, Albert Schweitzer wrote a book called In Search of the Historical Jesus, and he set liberal Christianity on a whole new path, a whole new direction. And we still have that today. It's basically a rejection of the veracity in the four Gospels of the New Testament and seeking to find the truth about Jesus somewhere else in history. Recent issue of U.S. News and World Report had on the front cover the real Jesus, searching for the truth between Mel Gibson and the Gospels. Notice... The truth isn't in the Gospels. It's not in the movie either, but it's somewhere out there. In 1945, there was a discovery in Egypt of the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels, and this led to the question of the lost Gospels, early texts that never made it into the Bible or suddenly popular. What did they tell us about Christianity Today, so Time Magazine on December 22nd made the Lost Gospels the cover story. Now, these Gnostic Gospels are part of the modern attack on the principle of a canon, and in postmodernism, one of the key elements is an attack on a canon, any canon, any standardized collection of authoritative text. Philip Jenkins, in his book, The Hidden Gospels, which has a lot of good information related to 
uh, the dating, etc., of, of these Gnostic Gospels, writes, Postmodern thought holds that no text should be privileged or authoritative as each reflects the ideological stance of a particular hegemonic group. In other words, what modern man is saying is that anytime you have a collected authoritative work, that's just the work of some exclusive group who's trying to dictate to everybody else. He goes on to say, from a postmodern view, texts in themselves lack authority and have value only insofar as they speak to the reader. Now, you all know that means their only value is the subjective impact they have. It's a complete rejection of objective truth. He goes on to say, and while postmodern theory dethrones the notion of privileged texts of canons, there is a strong preference for works that reflect the experience of the excluded or the traditionally powerless. Now, in modern America, we know that the most excluded and powerless and downtrodden group in America is the women, right? So now we have in Newsweek of December 8, 2003, the women of the Bible. And, of course, this also was the result of the Da Vinci Code. And so the uh, headline reads, How Their Stories Speak to Us Today. And then there's an article, Mary Magdalene Decoding the Da Vinci Code. And that is the point this morning. All of this, these ideas, these postmodern ideas, elements of modern or neo-Gnosticism, have been woven together in an extremely popular work of fiction that sort of intravenously force-feeds all sorts of pseudo-scholarship, historical revisionism, and just plain distortion of facts to the everyday reader who just wants to enjoy a good piece of escapist fiction. Enter the Da Vinci Code. Gnosticism at a theater near you. See, one of the things that's going to happen, this is going to come out in a major motion picture in another year, and all of this neo-Gnosticism is going to go even more mainstream than it is already. So why is this important? Why should we take the time on a Sunday morning to think about a fictional suspense novel? After all, it's just pulp fiction, something to entertain for the moment, brief diversion, something to escape the cares of everyday life with, right? So what justifies spending time on this novel? First of all, The Da Vinci Code was released in March a year ago. It has sold more than 6 million hardcover copies in the last 12 months, despite an overall 6% decline in hardback sales. Those are remarkable figures. Think about it. In the last 30 years, plus or minus, the late great planet Earth has sold about 35 million. So this is an impressive sales record for a work of fiction. For 36 weeks, it's been on top of the New York Times bestseller list. In November, ABC aired a primetime news special entitled Jesus, Mary, by whom they mean Mary Magdalene, and Da Vinci, exploring controversial theories about religious figures and the Holy Grail. Yeah, that always pops up in those suspense novels. In the spring of 2004, there will be released at least four nonfiction titles connected to the themes of the Da Vinci Code, and I'm not talking about Christian critiques of the novel. Ron Howard, Brian Grazier, and Akiva Goldsman, the Oscar-winning team which gave us a beautiful, the film A Beautiful Mind, will make a film of the Da Vinci Code for release in 2005. One thing that makes this such a popular novel for folks is it has a heavy anti-Roman Catholic theme, as did his previous novel, uh, Angels and Demons. This um, appeals to the non-traditional religious element in our society, feminism, New Age mysticism, and wraps it all up in a package that appeals to a postmodern mindset. See, the basic thesis of the Da Vinci Code is an egregious Christological heresy. Now, for the last three months, we've been studying what the Bible teaches about who 
Jesus is. But this book claims that there's a cache of secretly stored documents in the sepulcher of Mary Magdalene, which will demonstrate the complete fraud of historic Christianity. According to these documents, Jesus was just a man. He was married to Mary Magdalene, who represents the principle of the divine goddess, and that the early church witnessed a power struggle between Peter, who represented male patriarchal authority and more primitive goddess worship. Of course, those nasty, aggressive males won, but only because they brought in a heavy hitter like Emperor Constantine in the Roman Empire, who basically, according to the author of this book, Constantine basically redefines Christianity, puts together his own canon, calls a church council, makes Jesus divine, and basically uses Christianity to unite a fragmented empire and subjugate women. Now, the reason this sells is because the mass market audience of Americans are so ignorant of history, especially church history. And I'm not talking about just pagan non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians in the pew. We're so ignorant of church history that when we read this stuff, we don't know what the answers are. We end up in some sort of mystical faith our own. Well, I'm just going to believe the Bible because that's what I've heard, and I can't answer this, and I'm not going to take the time to. But you see, if we're going to interact intelligently with our neighbors, friends, and family, my father-in-law was given six copies of the Da Vinci Code for his birthday. You know, it's everywhere. So if we're going to interact with this, then we need to we need to know something about what is going on in the world around us. An early church, so we are going to spend this morning decrypting the Da Vinci Code. An early church father by the name of Irenaeus, who lived towards the end of the 2nd century, he flourished around 160 to 200 A.D., wrote in his book, Contra heresis. Now, I want you to remember that. I'm using a term, I've used it in the first hour, heresis, a Greek word that later came to mean heresy. It had the idea of factions or schisms. And he wrote a book called Against All Heresies. That's translated into English. In the Greek, it's contra heresis. And in contra heresis, he wrote, Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity. Lest, being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. And he is dealing with the same issues in Contra Heresis that we're dealing with this morning in the Da Vinci Code. It's one of the classic early church documents on uh, early Gnosticism. Now, when we come to this book, The Da Vinci Code, for those of you who haven't read it, how many of you all have read it? Okay. For those of you who haven't read it, let's review the basic plot. It opens with the murder of the cura- curator of the Louvre Museum in Paris, Jacques Saunier, and he his body is laid out because of the way he forced himself to lie at the point of death in a rather cryptic stance a Harvard religious symbologist, that means somebody whose specialty is in religious symbols, by the name of Robert Langdon is called in to help solve the mystery. Now, the first hint for any knowledgeable reader that something is amiss is as Langdon enters the Louvre under the glass pyramid designed by I.M. Pei, and the author notes that the pyramid is composed of 666 panes of glass. You know, your little antenna ought to be vibrating at that point. Actually, it's 673 panes of glass, the first foreshadowing of the author's poor scholarship and restructuring of reality to fit his own reality. The plot then progresses at a rapid pace through many twists and turns, some predictable, some not, with various two-dimensional characters who deepen the suspense and introduce various tension elements into the story. Now, one of the key mechanics of the advance of the plot is the use of various cryptic clues, usually in the form of riddles and anagrams. 
to lead the characters on their search for the Holy Grail. Always something that appeals to fiction readers. There's something here for every religious conspiracy nut. You've got the Knights Templars, the Rosicrucians, the Masons, secret societies like the Priory of Zion, as well as the Vatican as the chief conspirator of all. At any moment, one expects to find out who really assassinated JFK and Abraham Lincoln and all of the other mysteries in history. As the investigation unfolds, the reader discovers in Brown's new deconstructed concept of the Holy Grail that it's no longer the chalice from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper, but it is now the womb of Mary Magdalene. Remember, in Roman Catholic theology, what happens to the the cup at at the Mass is that the wine turns into the blood of Christ. So the chalice is what holds the blood of Christ, and now it's Mary Magdalene's womb that holds the blood of Christ in his descendants and heirs, because according to Brown, they were married and had children. It's in her womb that she passed on the blood of Jesus to her heirs. It is this secret that's at the core of the novel. It's this secret that is the reason for the murder of Saunier. So on the one hand, you have the Vatican seeking to suppress the discovery of the grail and the grave of Mary Magdalene, and it's willing to use the talents of an albino assassin who's a monk from this secret sect called Opus Dei. And on the other hand, you have the Priory of Sion, which is a secret society of goddess worshipers who've protected the identity and location of the grail down through the centuries. The denouement of the book leaves the reader somewhat unsatisfied as Langdon discovers the location of the grave but decides to keep it secret and unopened, its contents undisclosed, allowing the deception of Christianity to continue. Of course, there's a woman in the novel. Her name is Sophie Neveu, and she is the granddaughter of the murdered man. Of course, her name is a clue to her character. The name means new wisdom in French. And, of course, Sophia is one of the emanations of God in Gnosticism. So if you know what you're looking for, you just see all kinds of heresy being touted in this particular book. Now, embedded in the action are numerous pauses which provide some of the characters' opportunities to pontificate on the failures and flaws and lies which undergird Christianity. Now, as you think about this, how much of this does the, the, um, the author believe? And some have asked, and this is out on his website, asked him if he is a Christian. I love his answer. It's so postmodern. Are you a Christian? This is his answer. I am, though perhaps not in the most traditional sense of the word. Oh, so you're going to make up your own meaning. Well, that's postmodernism. Well, what are some of the false ideas that are touted in this particular novel? Early Christianity and Judaism included both male and female deities, including a divine goddess cult. He also claims that Yahweh of the Old Testament was the male, Shekinah, the female, counterpart of that deity. Mary Magdalene represents this divine goddess cult as the wife of Jesus. Fourth, Magdalene's womb, which carried Jesus' children, is the legendary Holy Grail. Fifth, Jesus was never understood to be divine until he was decreed to be so at Nicaea by the Emperor Constantine. Now, the date of Nicaea is 325. Dates are important here, so remember that. Write it down, 325. He also claims, sixth, that at Nicaea the divine goddess cult and the feminine dimension were permanently quashed by Constantine. Of course, see Shirley MacLaine in her book Out on a Broken Limb, uh, Out on a Limb, claimed that it was at Nicaea that that reincarnation was expunged from Christianity. See, if you don't understand what went on at Nicaea, you're prone to let all of these historically ignorant people use it to bash Christianity. 
Mary, uh, seventh, Mary Magdalene fled after the resurrection to France where her children lived in secrecy. Eighth, Mary Magdalene's remains, along with secret documents, were discovered on the Temple Mount by the Knights Templar during the First Crusade. Of course, he doesn't address the issue of how her remains got from France back to Jerusalem. Ninth, Mary Magdalene's descendants intermarried with the royal house of France and founded the Merovingian dynasty. Tenth, the Gospels discovered at Nag Hammadi in Egypt tell the true story of early Christianity. Eleventh, the secret truth about Jesus and Mary Magdalene has been protected by a secret society called the Priory of Zion, which has been led over the centuries by such notables as Da Vinci, Isaac Newton, who incidentally was a Christian, who wrote more commentaries on the Bible than he did about science, and Victor Hugo, as well as some others. Needless to say, all of this work in a pop fictional book has taken esoterica mainstream and provided a host of misinformation, disinformation, lies, and fabrication, which confuse and distract many young believers as well as uh, most uh, unbelievers. Now, it's my thesis that such an event, while it, as the movie and the, uh, rather the film and the book, while they are heresy, they're going to provide each of us with many different opportunities to witness to people. Just in the last couple of weeks as I've been on airplanes carrying this book with me, I've been asked numerous times, what do you think about that book? What a great opportunity. If you just, you know, can remember about five or ten things about it, you can, you can end up with, gee, you want to let me tell you about what the Bible really teaches about Jesus? And you have a great opening to, to give the gospel. One of the reasons that we, we should do this and that evaluating this book is important is because at the, in the preface of the book, one whole page, you have this statement, fact, now, there's a claim to historical factuality here that the author continues to promote on all the morning talk shows and anybody who will listen. And he says, for example, the Priory of Zion was a European secret society founded in 1099, and this is a real organization. It is, but it's a gentleman's club, and it was founded in Paris in 1956. And then he concludes by saying all descriptions of artwork architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Well, we've already seen one, 666 panes in the, in, the, in the pyramid outside the Louvre. Well, they can't count. But factuality has nothing to do with truth in postmodernism because modern man has rejected the concept of truth. Well, what are some of the general errors in the book? What are some of the general errors in the book? Well, before I go there, let me answer one more question. Why should we care if this work is fiction? See, a lot of people will say, well, why are you spending so much time? This is just a work of fiction. Well, fiction doesn't mean that everything in the book is false. I mean, think, for example, of the book The Killer Angels, which was a historical novel about the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, we don't know exactly what Lee said to Longstreet, but it's a pretty good representation of what happens in the Battle of Gettysburg is, is accurately portrayed in this historical novel. So just because something is fiction doesn't mean everything is false. And often fiction is used as a very effective means to deceive people and to teach all manner of philosophy. Simply because when we re pick up a work of fiction, the average person who doesn't have more than a room temperature IQ lowers his, his thinking grid, and he'll let everything come in. It's like I often tell you when you go see certain movies, and I said this about The Passion of Christ, have your have the family and the kids read through the gospel accounts five or six times and then give your kids a contest. Who can find the most errors in relationship to Scripture. As soon as you go to a movie like that, you've got a thinking, discerning grid erected so that you're not going to passively just absorb everything that's thrown at you. And when you read fiction, you should be doing the same thing. Well, what are some general errors of fact 
in the Da Vinci Code? Well, first of all, the ancient Olympics, he claims, were held to honor Aphrodite. In reality, they honored Zeus. Second, he claims that, see, Aphrodite is a goddess of love. So that feeds his emphasis on the feminine goddess thing. Rather than Zeus, we don't want to have some male god. He claims, point number two, that the ancient world was dominated by goddess worship, uh, which was a more enlightened spirituality that was later replaced by those awful male-dominated pantheons and eventually, the worst of all, that male Judeo-Christian god. The reality is that if you trace back every world religion, every pantheistic system known throughout all of history, whether you're talking South America, the Fiji Islands, whether you're talking about uh, primitive cultures in Alaska, Africa, Asia, wherever, every single religious system in history can be traced back to a supreme a single supreme male God. It's completely different from this evolutionary history of religion garbage that you were taught in school that that you went from many gods, you know, animism, primitivism to many gods, and then ultimately man evolved to monotheism. The fact is that as the Bible reports and has been demonstrated in numerous studies that are rejected by uh, modern anti-Christian scholars, is that after Noah came off the ark, everyone, all eight of them, worshipped one god, the great and mighty god, El Gabor. But as they, their descendants got away from God, they started inventing other gods, and you went, you saw this deterioration and degeneration from monotheism to polytheism and eventually pantheism. But don't take my word for it, in Tikva Frimer Kinsky's book, In the Wake of the Goddesses, there is scholarly documentation that there never were any dominant female goddesses in any ancient religion. They weren't that way. They all had dominant male gods. Feminism just wants to redo history to fit their modern notions. Third point, he claims, is that there are various uh, cathedrals mentioned in the book that were built by the Knights Templar, but the Knights Templar had nothing to do with building cathedrals. Fourth, he claims the theory that da Vinci painted the Last Supper to include Mary, include Mary Magdalene. If you look carefully at it, you'll see the figure sitting to, from, from your vantage point, just to the left of Jesus in the middle, is a young man who has long red hair. So he claims that that was actually Mary Magdalene. This uh, theory was clearly rejected by uh, noted da Vinci scholar Carmen Bombach on the, to Katie Couric on the Today Show. Fifth point of error is he claims that the assassin in the book is a monk in the Opus Dei uh, Catholic, uh, which is a uh, Catholic conservative organization, but Opus Dei has no monks. Of course, we've already discussed the error of the number of panes of glass in the Louvre Pyramid. Seventh, he claims that the church during the Middle Ages burned five million women as witches, but unfortunately the actual number of those executed in the witch crazes was somewhere between thirty to 40,000 at the low end and maybe 200,000 at the high end. But not all were women, not all were witches, and not all were burned. So he continues to change history to fit his new paradigm. He also claims that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1950s. In his statement, he says, Fortunately for historians, some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate, now that's a false statement, but some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. Now, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the late 1st and mid-2nd century B.C., you know, the big problem with liberals is they want to late date the Gospels. He's early dated them two, 200 years before Jesus. There were no Gospels in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's all Old Testament stuff. 
They weren't found in the 50s. They were found in 1947 in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. He got that much right. So he can't get basic history correct. Ninth, one of the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels was called the Gospel of Thomas. And incidentally, the Jesus Seminar, that noted group of liberals who took their razor blades out and chopped up the Gospels, uh, claimed that there are really five Gospels, and they're using the Gospel of Thomas as the fifth Gospel as the uh, centerpiece to interpret the other, the other four Gospels and exclude most of them from reality. In fact, according to the, the, the Jesus Seminar has five, five levels that they're evaluating whether Jesus actually said it, might have said it, probably said it, didn't say it, couldn't have said it. None of the Gospel of John could possibly have been said by Jesus, according to them. So the Gospel of Thomas does not promote feminism or goddess worship in Mary as the book claims. See, Brown claims the Gospel of Thomas promotes this feminist goddess worship. The final verse in the Gospel of Thomas makes this clear. Note what, how it concludes. Jesus is allegedly speaking here and says to Peter, I myself shall lead her, Mary Magdalene, in order to make her male. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a real pro-feminist position, isn't it? Ninth, T. Bing, who is the Oxford educated historical expert in this work of fiction, makes the following claim. The Sangreal documents, that's the French for the Holy Grail, the Sangreal documents include tens of thousands of pages of information. Notice that. Tens of thousands of pages of information. Eyewitness accounts of the Sangreal treasure describe it as being carried in four enormous trunks. And those trunks are reputed to be the purest documents. Thousands of pages of unaltered pre-Christian documents written by the early followers of Jesus, revering him as a holy human teacher and prophet. Sounds good. Only trouble is, we don't have thousands, much less tens of thousands of pages on any historical figure preceding the Middle Ages. It's just pure hyperbole and garbage. Dan Brown, number 10, Dan Brown, or 11, Dan Brown also claims that there's nothing new in Christianity or Christian symbols. It was all stolen from other religions. He gets this from a book called The uh, the Christ Conspiracy. One of the claims he makes is that the Persian god Mithras was uh, called the son of God and the light of the world. And see, Christianity just picked those terms up and applied them to Jesus to justify their positions. However, just false. Mithras scholars all state that the term son of God and the light of the world never applied to Mithras. It never appears. Dan Brown also claims that Mithras was born on December 25th, and that's where the Christians got that date for Jesus, but Christians who know anything about the Bible know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. The early Christian church just sold, just chose that date as a birthday celebration for Jesus because the pagans were having their midwinter festival of Saturnalia. Furthermore, Brown claims that Mithra died and was buried in a rock tomb and resurrected in three days. And that's where the Christians got that idea for Jesus. But that's not true. There's nothing in Mithraism that would support that claim. In other words, he just throws these claims out with no historical justification, and they deceive and distract those who are ignorant of history and those who are ignorant of other religions. Uh, Twelfth, the albino assassin in the book doesn't seem to suffer from the eyesight problems that plague most albinos. Thirteenth, he has Clement II in Rome. Clement II was a pope during the time of what was called the the Babylonian captivity of the papacy, and Clement II uh, purged the Knights Templar because they were getting too much power, and he puts him in Rome at the time, but he actually was during the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. Clement II was in Avignon, so he can't even get his popes in the right place. And then 14th, the Priory of Zion is an actual organization. It's a gentleman's club founded in Paris in 1956. Now, those are just some of the non-religious or non-theological errors in the book. See, it's the way you start with this is you start showing that he can't get history right, 
then he can't get his facts on Christianity right. And although I'm not dealing a lot with Scripture here, his claim is because his claims are on history, not so much on Scripture. So how does he go about this assault on Christianity? Well, first of all, he starts with an attack on biblical authority. This is foundational. This is why we have to understand uh, the whole doctrine of canonicity and the history of the Bible and how the canon came together. And very few people teach on this. And right, while right now I'm doing this mini-series on who is Jesus, before the year is out, I will do a series on how we got the Bible because people need to be aware of the historical facts of how the canon was put together. So Brown attacks, first of all, he attacks the legitimacy of the Bible and the New Testament canon. This is what he says. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is the product of man, my dear. These are the words of his historical expert, Teabing. The Bible is the product, not the pro, uh, excuse me, says the product, the Bible is the product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, let's look at this statement. First of all, it's a straw man argument because it's based on a false view of inspiration. But unfortunately, most Christians don't aren't educated enough to realize that the Bible wasn't dictated. The Bible, according to our definition of inspiration, was God breathed. It's written through the apostles and apostolic associates. And God, the Holy Spirit, superintends or governs the process so that the writers of Scripture, utilizing their own style, their own personality, their own background, their own emotions, write the Scriptures, but God overrules it and over, overrides it or governs it so that what they wrote in the original manuscripts was without error, so that you see certain stylistic differences between Paul and John and Peter as each man expresses their own, uh, their own background, their own personality in what they write. So he, he's assuming a false view of in, inspiration which he attacks. And that's called dealing with a strong man argument. He then says that man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times. Well, that's just blatantly false. It is not a historical record. It is a theological interpretation of history from God's perspective. It hasn't evolved through translation. See, that's how ignorant people talk. Translations technically don't change things. They just translate from one language to another. So no matter how many translations you have, as long as you have the original, it doesn't change anything. And there were not additions or revisions. And furthermore, history, he claims, has never had a definitive version of the book, and that's false. It has had a definitive version of the book. But let's hear what the early church fathers had to say about the canon of Scripture. For example, by first of all, you had... You had an early church father by the name of Papias, whose dates were 60 to 130. He overlaps the apostles. In fact, he was a student of the apostle John. And in his writings, he was the first to mention each of the four Gospels, but no more. Now, he doesn't say there's only four. He doesn't mention them in our order. But at various times in different places in his writings, he mentions each of the four Gospels and no others. It was left to a later father, about 50 years later, to identify and limit them to the four that we have. By 150 A.D., Justin Martyr, uh, I skipped some, okay, Let's go back. By 150, Justin Martyr identifies and limits the present fourfold gospel. So we don't have this, this um, development and changing New Testament. Second point that he gets wrong is that during Jesus' lifetime, he inspired millions to live better lives. That's his claim. Unfortunately, Millions didn't know about Jesus during his lifetime. Very few did. Our third, 
Third thing he claims it's false is that there were more than 80 Gospels from which four were chosen to be in the New Testament. Now, this quote kind of summarizes these last two points. He says, Jesus Christ was a historical figure of staggering influence, perhaps the most enigmatic and inspirational leader the world has ever seen. Understandably, his life was recorded by thousands of followers across the land. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Among them? The Bible, as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. Now, there's a lot to discuss in that quote. First of all, Jesus was virtually unknown outside of Palestine. Thousands didn't write about him. Hardly anyone did. In fact, of his contemporaries, only Josephus and Pliny mention him, and they barely mention him, only by name, obliquely. He says, he claims, Dan Brown claims, understandably, his life was recorded by thousands of followers across the land, and that's just false. Jesus wasn't influential during his lifetime, or subsequently he didn't become influential, and that is in terms of being a staggering influence, until well into the 5th or 6th century A.D. He also claims that there were more than 80 Gospels written, and that's false. At the most, including the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels, which were all written over 100 to 150 years after, after the canonical Gospels, uh, at the most, including all the heretical ones, there were 15 to 20. As I said earlier, Papias mentions the four Gospels in his writings. That's at about 100. That's 225 years before Constantine. Uh, by 150, uh, another 150 or 175 years before Constantine, Justin Martyr identified and limited the present fourfold gospel canon. In other words, there's just four. By 170 A.D., Tatian composed his work called the Diatessaron, which is basically a harmony of the four gospels. He has the four and no more. Irenaeus writes about one. 70 A.D., it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. And he used the analogy of the four winds. So for Irenaeus, there's only four Gospels. Origen, who writes in the early part of the 3rd century, his dates are 185 to 254, writes, according to Eusebius in his History of the Church, which was written in the late I mean, in the early 3rd century, or 4th century, Origen wrote, I accept the traditional view. Now, this is about 225 A.D. He says, I accept the traditional view of the four Gospels. So, with, by 100, about 120 years after John wrote the Gospel of John, the early church fathers are saying four Gospels are the traditional view. And it is these four Gospels which alone are undeniably authentic in the church of God on earth. Origen also wrote, I know a certain Gospel which is called the Gospel according to Thomas and a Gospel according to Matthias. And many others have we read, lest we should in any way be considered ignorant. Nevertheless, among all these, we have approved solely what the church has recognized, which is that only the four Gospels should be accepted. So the testimony of the church fathers to a man prior to, uh, I mean, 100 to 150 years before Constantine is that there were only four Gospels. Part of the problem here is that many Christians don't understand the process of canonicity. We think there was some church council that put its stamp of approval on the 27 books of the New Testament, and that's not how it happened. There were actually, uh, I could say about... Oh, five or six canons of inclusion or rules, things that they were looking for. And these are, first of all, that to see if the, the writing recognized the essential contribution of the Old Testament and was consistent with what was taught in the Old Testament. Secondly, they wanted to know if this book that was 
possibly include, to be included or to considered authoritative in the local church if what it said was consistent with what was clearly known to be the teaching of the apostles. Third, there would be the recognition of its inspiration. This is not something that was handed down, but something that it, that 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 resonates. You, you have the self-authenticating view of God in in the Scriptures. If you sit down some afternoon and read through the Gnostic Gospels and then read through the canonical Gospels, you'll see that there's an incredible difference. I mean, it's it's obvious, and so this was part of the process. And the fourth canon was that there was a widespread use and recognition that this was what was accepted in the churches, that it wasn't just that one church over here in Syria accepted it, but that they were, they were accepted throughout the church. That um, there were some books that we've included in the canon that were disputed at the beginning. Revelation was questioned. Why? Well, at the end of Revelation, there's this curse that anyone who misinterprets the book is going to be cursed by God. Well, maybe we don't want that in our Bible. You know, they, they also didn't know who wrote Hebrews. Well, how do we know it has apostolic authority if we don't know who wrote it? Other books like Philemon and Jude uh, were written to individuals. They weren't written to churches. We know from the Scripture itself, Peter, Peter clearly states that they understood that, that the writings of Paul were inspired by God and were being collected even during the New Testament period by the various churches. You have some of Paul's letters were written to various groups of churches, like the epistle to the Colossians, and it would be passed around to different churches. And so collections were being made already. But with a couple of exceptions, there were no other books other than these 27 that were seriously considered by the church as a whole for inclusion. Now, there was an odd church here or there that would read on Sunday morning from the Didache, which was written about 60 to 70 A.D., The Teaching of the Twelve. There was another book called The Shepherd of Hermas, which was a little devotional book, and The Epistle of Barnabas. Now, there's nothing heretical in those three books at all. They're orthodox, they're solid, they're, they're good reading, and in a few isolated churches for a brief period, they were read as if they were on par with, with other books that we now know and claim to be Scripture. But that quickly died out. You see, there's another thing going on here, and that's finances. It was expensive to copy and to have a codex of Scripture. If just the writing materials alone for a scroll's worth of, of data in a codex, for example, let's say just Romans, just the writing materials and the parchments and the binding alone would cost the wages of about 10 or 12 days wages for a working man. That's not, that's not counting the amount of money you would spend to pay a scribe to copy it. So it's expensive. So are you going to be spending your money for something that really isn't spiritually valuable? No, you're not. Furthermore, when there were persecutions, and there weren't that many widespread persecutions, Hollywood has blown them out of proportion, there were some more localized persecutions, and there were a few periods in the first three centuries when there were empire-wide persecutions, but they wouldn't last long. But if somebody knocks on your door and says, if you own a copy of Romans, you're going to die. Well, I'll die for Romans, but I'm not going to die for the shepherd of Hermas. So you see, they were making decisions very early on about what they would die for and what they would pay for. And then you had pressure in the middle of the second century from uh, a heretic named Marcion who was anti-Semitic. And he put together his own canon. Now, up to that point, nobody really put together a, quote, canon. But when Marcion said there's only 11 authoritative New Testament books, and he got rid of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because, or Matthew, Mark, and John because they were too Jewish, and he got rid of a couple of Paul's epistles because they were too Jewish, and, of course, you can't have Hebrews or Revelation in there, and he ends up with an 11-book canon, it forced the rest of the church, the Orthodox Church, to say, okay, which books are authoritative? And so by 200, you have, uh, and we still we have records of the Muratorian canon, which I think contained about 23 of our 27 books. Now, the first list that we have of the 27 New Testament books uh, that we have today was in an Easter letter by Athanasius. 
from about 346 A.D. So the early church fathers clearly recognized most of the New Testament books, but from at least 120 on, if not a little earlier, all four canonical Gospels and no more were accepted. I mean, nothing was ever given uh, in terms of a Gospel was given uh, any kind of consideration. These Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, and you also have the Gospel of Philip, and what the attempt is made to early date these, that they were the same time period as the uh, canonical Gospels. But I mentioned earlier the work by Philip Jenkins, who's a distinguished professor of history and religious studies at Penn State University. Notice I didn't say conservative Baptist seminary. At Penn State University uh, debunks all of this these claims and shows that, for example, the Gospel of Philip is generally dated to about 200 years after Jesus lived, so it can't be a contemporary account about Jesus. Furthermore, the same is said about the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, even though Karen King, who is a scholar and part of the Jesus Seminar, tries to date the Gospel of Mary Magdalene into the first century, even her co-heretics on the Jesus Seminar do not date it that early. They all, to a man, oh, I shouldn't say man, that automatically destroys their testimony. They dated to the late 2nd and early 3rd century, 150, 200 years after Jesus. So these can't be, can't be, can't be, uh, historical records. Okay, let's move on. He claims that the, um, Early Christian records were among the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the four Gospels and the Nag Hammadi texts, and that's just false because the Christian records weren't part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And fifth, he claims that the Nag Hammadi texts speak of Christ's ministry in very human terms. But the, the Nag Hammadi texts are Gnostic, and Gnostics were denying the humanity of Jesus. So how could they speak of him in human See, that was part of docetism, which we studied in 1 John, that they thought Jesus just appeared to be a man. But in Platonism, God couldn't really become identified with material flesh. So there's a contradiction of terms there. Six, he claims that Jesus' marriage to Mary Magdalene is a matter of historical record. Just pops right out of this guy's mouth. Didn't you know that? Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Everybody knows that. How do you refute that? Well, his claim was that, that the in the Aramaic of the Gospel of Philip, the word, the, the statement is that Mary was Jesus' companion. And the word for companion in the, is the word for spouse in the Aramaic. But the Gospel of Philip was written in Greek. Seventh, he claims that Constantine invented the deity of Jesus and forced it on the church at the Council of Nicaea. Now, in our study, a couple of weeks, we'll spend a lot of time on Nicaea because that's where the church really comes to articulate the hypostatic union. And our understanding today of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, the union of deity and humanity in one person, is based on how they articulated it at Nicaea. But see, they're not inventing it at Nicaea. What they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking what the Scripture says and what has been held by the church for 300 years or 250 years, and they're figuring how to correctly state it. They are not inventing it. But Brown claims there's a picture of Constantine being baptized. Brown claims, at the Council of Nicaea, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of bishops, the administration of sacraments, and, of course, the divinity of Jesus. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Now, is that true? Is that what history reveals? Well, let's look at some statements by Clement of Rome, who was... Uh, contemporaneous with the last of the apostles. He was in Rome during the late first century. He died about 100 A.D., not long after the apostle John. And he wrote, The scepter of the majesty of God, even our Lord Jesus Christ. See, right there he equates deity with the Lord Jesus Christ. So by the end of the first century, you have a clear statement, extra-biblical statement on the deity of Christ. Of course, the Bible claims Jesus was God. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We've studied this over and over and over again the last three months on the deity of Christ. The, the Messiah was 
prophesied to be God from the Old Testament, from Genesis 3.15 forward, Isaiah 7.14, he would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 9.6. He would be called Mighty God. Throughout the Scriptures, he has announced that the Messiah would be God. In the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus is viewed to be God. All of the early church fathers understood him to be God. It wasn't invented at Nicaea. Ignatius, early church father, in his epistle to the Smyrnaean, says, For if these things were done by our Lord in semblance, see, he's countering Gnosticism and Docetism that it really wasn't physical, it, just, it was just the semblance of being physical. And he says, If these things were done by our Lord in semblance, then I am also a prisoner in semblance. He had been arrested and he was in prison when he wrote these epistles. So he rejects this whole concept of Docetism. Ignatius also wrote in his epistle to the, to the Ephesians the following. Now, this is about roughly 120 A.D., and he writes, We have also, as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word, before time began, but who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin. For the Word was made flesh, being incorporeal, he was in the body, being impassable, he was in a passable body. Being immortal, he was in a mortal body. Being life, he became subject to corruption that he might free our souls from death and corruption. He clearly believes in the deity of Christ, 125 A.D. Irenaeus, about 175 to 195 A.D., those were his, his dates when he flourished. He states, the church, though dispersed throughout the, throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation. See, this is 150 years before Constantine, before the Council of Nicaea. It's a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Furthermore, he claims, that is, Brown claims, point number eight, that the vote at Nicaea was very close, that they, that they just barely passed the vote to make Jesus divine. There were over 300 bishops at Nicaea. Only two didn't sign the creed. Let me see, 300 to two, that's, that's close. There must have been some hanging chads. Ninth, Constantine, he claims, imposed the four Gospels and the modern canon on the church. That's on page 232. He calls it Constantine's canon. But as I've already pointed out, that is false. Constantine did not... Constantine was probably an Arian. That means he didn't believe in the eternality of Jesus. He was probably an Arian Christian. He was a Christian, but he called the Council of Nicaea because there was this huge turmoil in the church, this debate over the... the uh, eternality of Jesus, whether he was a creature created in eternity past or just or equal to God, and he wanted peace in the church. And so he called the council. They met at Nicaea in, in one of his palaces and uh, came to their conclusions there. But Constantine wasn't even there. He did not, he did not impose anything. Uh, tenth, he, Brown claims that Constantine coined the word heretic, but it's found in several places in the New Testament, and it's clearly used in the sense of false, a, a schismatic group of false teachers by the time of Irenaeus in 170 A.D. Eleventh, Brown claims that Shekinah was the female consort of Jehovah, which he claims is a word that combines the masculine Yah and the pre-Hebraic name of Eve, Chava. Now, you're not going to catch this, but let me tell you, folks, in Jehovah, the second letter, the H, is what is called in Hebrew a hey. The first letter in Eve is a hate. It's a different letter. Furthermore, the term Jehovah in the, in the, is an English invention that came up in the 16th century A.D. as a compound of the consonants in Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai, because the Jews would not say the name of God. Today, they'll usually refer to him as Hashem, the name. But what they did in the in the Hebrew Bible was under the four letters of the sacred tetragrammaton, YHWH for Yahweh or JHVH, they inserted the vowels, the Hebrew vowel points for the Hebrew word Adonai. 
Well, what these English transcribers did in the 16th century was they took the consonants from one word with the vowels of another word and invented a whole new name for God, Jehovah. I mean, he doesn't understand history, and it's just filled with error. Then he claims, 12, that Christianity honored the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday, but Constantine's the one who shifted it to Sunday to coincide with the pagans' veneration day of the sun. In fact, he claims Constantine wasn't even a believer. However, this is, runs counter to much of, of uh, church history. Ignatius, who's the bishop of Antioch around 110 A.D., said, If then those who walk in the ancient practices attained a newness of hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but fashioning their lives after the Lord's Day, that was Sunday, the first day of the week, on which our life also arose through him. See, it's the first day of the week of the resurrection, and, um, uh, which is Sunday that we may be found disciples of Jesus Christ. So even in the Bible and Acts, they have the Christians meeting on Sunday. But historical records such as Ignatius, Justin Martyr, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas dated 120 to 150, all indicate that the church is meeting on the Lord's own day. The Didache, written in 70 to 75, this first century, states, uh, instructs believers, quote, on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and gives give thanks. In Brown's novel, his hero remarks that every faith in the word is based on fabrication. This is the definition of faith, acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. It is completely false, and it is a theological novel. There's a tremendous amount of heresy coming to a theater near you. And in a hardback book that your friends and neighbors are all reading. As believers, it is part of our responsibility not only to witness, but to witness intelligently. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. You can't just sit there and bite your tongue because you don't know the answers when somebody is saying something false. You are required as a member of the royal family of God to give an answer, to defend the gospel, to state the truth. Now, you have to do it wisely. You have to do it circumspectly. You don't just do it brashly and, you know, pull out a a cold, wet wash rag and slap somebody in the face with it. But you have to learn how to explain the truth and not let people just suck up error. So hopefully you can use this and you can study this and come up with just a few facts. You don't have to learn all of this, but you can come up with three or four historical errors, three or four religious errors, point those out to somebody and say, you want to hear what the Bible really says about Jesus Christ. Jesus claimed to be God. And either he was God, who he claimed to be, or he was a liar. See, Brown makes the same mistake every unbeliever does. They want to say, oh, well, he was a great teacher. He was a wonderful uh, religious innovator. No, you can't have that option, unbeliever. He claimed to be God. Either he's right and he is God, or he's a liar who's deceived tens of millions into believing falsehood. And if he's a liar, either he is self-deceived, or he was intentionally deceiving people. If he was intentionally deceiving people, then he was a horrible, evil person, much worse than an Adolf Hitler. But if he was self-deceived, then he's loonier than a bat. So does anything substantiate either of those conclusions? Not at all. He is who he claimed to be. And if he is who he claimed to be, then he did what he claimed to do, which is to die on the cross as a substitute for your sins. And that's the gospel. And all you have to do is trust in him and you'll have eternal life. It's a great opportunity. What a great day to live in. Give us these kinds of opportunities between the movie, The Passion of Christ, whatever you think about it, in this book, people are talking about Jesus and the crucifixion in the marketplace every day. And we just have to have the chutzpah to take advantage of that and witness with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon who Jesus is, to recognize that that you haven't just given us some mystical hope, but that there is clear 
rational, empirical evidence substantiating the veracity of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins, which he did in full on the cross. The issue, therefore, is not your sin. The issue is your relationship to Jesus Christ. The gospel is succinct. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Belief means to trust, to rely on. That means all you have to do is believe or rely upon the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you have eternal life. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God. It's not a matter of reforming your life. It's not a matter of of, uh, being involved in religious ritual. It is simply faith alone in Christ alone. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your trust in Christ to believe that he died for you. You don't need to pray a prayer. You don't need to tell God that you believe because God is omniscient. He knows what you believe. You don't need to raise your hand, sign an envelope, get baptized, or do anything else. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you will have eternal life. Father, we thank you for our great salvation and our magnificent Lord who paid the price for our sins. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.